Welcome back to the Modus Morandi podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Hikaru Clark. You can connect with me at Modus Morandi on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest episodes, submit questions, or provide feedback. I'd really appreciate it if you could share with one or two friends or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The guest for this episode is Eustinus Mitskus. Eustinus grew up in Lithuania, attended Princeton University, and is now a graduate student in politics and international studies at the University of Cambridge. He's previously worked in policy research in Lithuania and has appeared in various media commenting on political issues. We're both also avid fans of the game GeoGuessr, uh, as well as having a lot of other common interests. Without further ado, here's my episode with Eustinus Mitskus. How are you? Hi, Thomas. Um, I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, no, been a... it, it's great to have you, and it's especially great now that we've just finished an epic game of GeoGuessr, yeah, which it's, it's a perfect sort of pre-podcast game to, I don't know, uh, you know, icebreaker or just uh, get in the mood for, um, yeah, talking about all kinds of random things, just being sort of a, a metaphor, I guess, just metaphorically being plucked somewhere really random, but then you just sort of make something out of exactly it. you try to make your way out and realize where you are yeah so i had no idea you were a big geoguessr fan too i'm a huge fan i mean yeah. i don't play it as much as you i found out but yeah so how, what got you into the game i'm not really sure i don't remember what got me into it but i did start playing it um i think first in 2018 2017 um i think uh circumstances would be the most accurate answer because um uh, it was a. Uh, I had just moved into a new place with a friend of mine. We've known each other for, you know, millions of years, and so, so there was never. It's one of those friendships where you can do nothing and mm-hmm. be thoroughly satisfied. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was also in Lithuania, early, like deep winter. Uh, nights are early, days are short. We both worked, and uh it just made so much sense to uh, sort of play GeoGuessr, play Catan, sometimes online, which was funny, uh, but we did it. Uh, and yeah, I think it was just one of those things. We also did like the Wikipedia game. Where, oh, you know, I love that one. Yeah, yeah I love that too. Try to, the one where you try to find, like you yeah. start at a random article yeah. and you try to get to another random article. Exactly. Yeah. A common strategy there is to, which I often use, but not often, but not uh, always, is... Um, to get to America, to the United States of America. Yeah. Because then it's sort of like it has everything if you want to branch off and do something else. Yeah, it's kind of like a hub node that, that everything yeah, kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because right now in my work, uh, believe it or not, actually, this t- actually comes up, this yeah. topic, because I'm looking at things called knowledge graphs, okay. which are basically like, it's you can basically build a knowledge graph on Wikipedia. You can sure. take all the different articles and then just connect two nodes with a link if one links to the other or if like if yeah, one yeah. is referenced in the other and that forms like this graph not a graph like y equals x squared type mm-hmm. of graph but like a network like a social network type of graph um where you know entities are connected if they, they share links um and there's this interesting phenomenon where you have these hub nodes like the united states of america mm-hmm. which just have millions of links and everything sort of connects to that and it's really useful in the case of like the wikipedia game because then you can just sort of go mm-hmm. to that and then get, get to anywhere else but in terms of like a knowledge graph it's actually kind of the opposite it's sort of unhelpful because 
it doesn't really tell you anything if like something passes through US eggs. Mm. Like everything can kind of like yeah, exactly. precisely because everything sort of passes through that, then it's like not as helpful. It's not like a surprising connection. Like you you can sort of just a priori yeah. guess that yeah. you're gonna yeah, pass yeah, through yeah. them. Yeah. So it has interesting ramifications outside of just the game. I was about to ask yeah. what um what uh, are they used on what oh. are they used for? Like, yeah, so I mean there's all sorts of things like I mean Wikipedia is like one example, but there's like knowledge graphs for let's say like biomedical okay. the biomedical mm -hmm. domain. And it basically just compiles a bunch of information in the biomedical domain. So if you're building like a natural language processing tool to let's say answer questions about like medical questions, then you can sort of use this knowledge mm -hmm. graph and and basically do queries on it and okay. you know, things yeah. things like that. Um but yeah. Yeah, it's sort of, like, interesting how these, like, fun things that people do to occupy their time end up having these, like, real-life repercussions. Like, GeoGuessr, like, is a game that millions of people play. But I recently... Oh, I'm forgetting the name now. But there's this, like, organization that, like, literally just does this for, like, intelligence purposes or, like, um, anti-terrorism. They basically, yeah. like, take photos that, like, let's say cartels or, like, terrorist organizations yeah. post. And just based on the photo... Try to pinpoint where exactly it is. Yeah, I think so Cat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Valen Cat, yeah. yeah. They literally just have these pro geoguesser people whose yeah. job it is to just like find out where these photos are taken. I do I mean, I would love to consider them pro geoguesser people. I do think that maybe there's more to what they do. But yes, essentially. <laughs> yeah, like, obviously it's greatly simplifying <laughs> simplifying what they do, but I mean, yeah. Those people probably are really good yeah. at geoguesser though. I would imagine. But I'm sure, yeah, the Bell and Cat now with uh, the, you know, this podcast is being recorded uh, in, in wake of the um, abduction of a, a Belarusian dissident journalist. Uh, and so uh, Bell and Cat was already sort of invited by a lot of uh, interested parties in Lithuania and the West and more generally to like sort of, you know, what if they can like more quickly retrieve the data of mm -hmm. a, on communications between the like secret uh, service and belarus yeah yeah and could you just like elaborate on that a little bit because i i mean i've like read like one article about it and from what i know it's just like this guy who's a journalist and he's like 26 years old and was critical of the regime in in belarus yeah. was like on a flight from greece that was just passing over belarus and it got like taken not like shot down but escorted yeah. to the nearest airport by a fighter jet yeah. and like obviously there's a bunch of outrage about that but i don't know too much more about about the, the background so yeah. sort of what's your take on it um well so the, so the objectively the background is that uh, since um um august 2020 um there have been uh intense democratic pro protests pro-democracy protests in uh, belarus um because of the multiple blatant uh, violations of electoral integrity during the presidential elections there. Um, and uh, they were, to a large extent, coordinated by this news platform, as I understand, or communication platform, but I think first and foremost, news platform called Nexta. And it is run by a few young people, one of whom is this guy, I don't want to mispronounce his last name. It starts with a P, it's Patasorovi or something. Um, it's Roman P. Um, and I do, I'm sorry, I cannot uh, right now recall the last name in full. But uh, yeah, um, he was, uh, as I understand, maybe vacationing in Greece. But again, um, all of this happened very, very quickly and there are so many other details on which to focus. 
that I didn't know the specific whereabouts there. Yeah, he and his uh, partner um, were flying back to Lithuania, where she, as I understand, is a student um, at a local, well, at the European Humanities University, which is uh, one of the very few, if not the only, universities in exile. That's how it's known. Mm. It uh, fled to Belarus some time ago and has been since hosted in uh, Vilnius. Uh, so she, they were flying back there, um, and um, the, I mean, this is all contested. Um, it all happened, you know, not 24 hours ago, so we don't yet know how exactly things played out, but according to the available information, um, the pilots received a message, or, you know, whether from the air traffic commission, for, or whether from their company, um, that there might be a security threat on the plane, and they were asked to reroute to the closest airport. Now, there's a quibble to be had here, because the closest airport at the time, when there were two minutes from entering the Lithuanian airspace and 70 kilometers away from Vilnius. But they instead rerouted back to uh, Minsk, which was like 170 kilometers away or so, and landed there. They were accompanied there by a MiG-29 fighter jet, by, a, you know, belonging to the Belarus, Belarusian Air Force. Um, there are fears that they've been threatened by that jet. That's unconfirmed. But more generally, um, it is a regular, it is some kind of practice uh, to some extent agreed upon that, you know, if authorities of the airspace over which uh, the plane is flying, you know, notify the notify the plane of a, a security threat, you know, some action is to be taken. Yeah, but, but so the details are kind of murky. What is known is that um, after the plane was grounded, um, the journalist and his friend were both detained. We now know that um, he is um, in a critical condition. That's what the last news item I saw um, um, read in a hospital. Um, his relatives who haven't met them, but um, they fear that he's being tortured. Um, as far as I checked, there was nothing about... Uh, his partner, except like very dramatic that uh, the last message she like the only thing that she managed to um, send out was just a message mom to her mom, just before going you know sort of not missing but unresponsive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so those both of those people were arrested. They were apprehended. Um, eyewitnesses in the plane say that uh, the security forces came on, searched for some you know, whatever it was, like a bomb or some other kind of threat. They acted as if they found it. But um, the way um, one eyewitness who was sitting next to the journalist reported that, uh, like the second uh, they were informed that uh, the passengers were informed that they would be landing in Minsk, um, that guy like knew what was happening. Yeah. He was like mortified, white. Gosh. Absolutely. Can you imagine like you're just on a plane and then yeah. like, I mean, you already know that you're not in exactly in the good graces of, of the regime. And you think like, okay, just a few more miles and we'll be out of this airspace. Yeah. But then, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, it's terrible. And it's insane to think about uh, how close it is to both my home, but also to what we consider, you know, the 
a much more standardized rule of law area of Europe, of the EU, yeah. that it's happening, you know, not two hours away. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, there is a huge effort currently right now as we're speaking, uh, the EU heads of state, heads of government are meeting to um, consider whether sanctions can be taken. It seems from like the draft uh, conclusions of the council meeting that were published, they are, will not, they're not the final ones. There should be a pretty expansive set of uh, restrictions on uh, both Belarusian national airlines, but also any flights going over Belarus should be asked to be rerouted. Lithuania unilaterally has already banned any flights that, incoming flights that go through Belarus. Wow. So there might be, just because it, it declared it as like unsafe for its citizens to fly over. Um, and there, yeah, there might be more. Um, we will see. It is, um, it seems like a lot of countries reacted uh, um, very, very severely. Obviously, it's a hugely, um, well, it's it's not unprecedented, but it's deeply troublesome. It's a, it's very, very um, aggressive kind of behavior. It also, I mean, it's a flight from one EU country to another uh, with a flight being registered to uh, Poland, not flight, uh, the plane belonging to an Irish company. So in no way was there actually any immense connection. The only last point that I forgot to say that is, I think, important is that in addition to the two people that were detained that we know that have, have been detained, four other passengers didn't get back on the plane after it was grounded and after all the security checkups because then the flight was allowed to resume you know to finish the journey and to yeah. go to Venice but four other people left and all of those people were either Russian or Belarusian and it's widely suspected that they were um, people who were following the arrested journalist he himself reported that he's being followed before boarding the plane uh, but it, that is understood as that's not like that didn't maybe notify him of what's to come. You know, I think these guys are unfortunately ready to be or expected to be followed because that's just the regimes under which they live. Um, but um, yeah, so four people are also missing and it is most likely that they are with the Belarusian KGB or potentially with them connected to the Kremlin, whether more or less directly. Wow. But yeah, so that's a... I think that's, hopefully that's a, not too detailed, but also detailed enough of the background. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's helpful for, for someone like me who's, yeah, it's, it's basically, you know, it's it's hard to stay up to date on everything that's going on. Oh, I think yeah. this, this seems like something, yeah, very, very important. I think for me, it's a bit just jarring to see something like that happen where kind of, you know, like in the US or in Western Europe, you're sort of used to like, there's many problems in politics, but like journalists being sort of, kidnapped yeah. is like not really one of them though i mean and that's a sad uh, comment on the day on the you know lives the times in which we live but uh, in the past 10 or so years there have been multiple high resonances they're called uh, cases of journalists being murdered in the eu um, really? there was okay. one in malta oh, wow. um there was uh, i think her name was daphne i don't remember her last name um there, uh, I well, I don't want to name countries, but there have been yeah, at least yeah. two or three other ones. I don't want to name countries now because I, that would be a shame for them. Then, but um, just because I don't remember exactly, and you know, 
you don't want to mix up Slovakia or Slovenia. So I'm sorry for that. Uh, no, no, I haven't no thought of yeah, it. Yeah, but no. uh, if we were to Joe Rogan or something, we'd have like yeah. a fact checker sitting there who's like Google stuff as we're talking. Yeah. But, Thank yeah, God we're, we're, we're not on Joe Rogan. So. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if we were on Joe Rogan, we'd have other problems. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the point being that um, though it is true that we generally have sort of you know we don't think of uh, we, we we are currently in the modern West, especially in the digitally savvy West concerned about cancel culture but we don't think about it in a sense of like authorities come and kill a journalist or yeah. like the mafia comes and sends somebody we fortunately however bad cancel culture is or not or it's a myth whatever but it is the worst it, ha- it is it's you know it's silencing through subtweeting um, in this case it is it is very jarring yeah definitely but it's happening very close and it's interesting to think, I don't want to get too political, but it is interesting. I often think about it. Um, I mean, um, you know, Lithuania is very, very active on uh, all issues pertaining to sort of democracy in, the, in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And it considers it one of its like, key pillars of its foreign policy. And so it has definitely, like, and, you know, it... It has met a receptive audience in some members of the U.S. policy circles, etc. But um, as a Lithuanian who's young and exposed to uh, the American, you know, how to say, society, I do sense a trend that uh, young people don't necessarily consider Belarus as the site, or like Eastern Europe any longer as the site of like big progressive battles, even though in some ways maybe a concerted action in this area would more quickly deliver some of the liberties that we really cherish than in others. But uh, I, don't, I don't think intuitively that a, a, lo- a lot of like young, especially liberal kids think of like that's where the fight is. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean that they don't care overall. And I think it's might, it might be connected to the fact that, you know, like um, the new generation has seen... So the U.S. act in different regions. I think a lot of them grew up um, in a sort of a context where the U.S. foreign policy was primarily viewed through its activities in the Middle East. Maybe now, um, or, or maybe migration is a huge issue. So like, rather, you know, it is in the context of relations with the Middle East, relations with uh, South America, with uh, Mexico. Um, also, it, resp- it correlates with a uh, demographic change, but um, but it is interesting to think not only that it's jarring and in that sense, like oh, we don't think about these things happening in Europe, but we also how to say uh, um, it also surprises us in a different way because I think the the window of uh, attention uh, is more generally shifted onto other kinds of questions or uh, areas or zones. I'm not making this as a case of like, ah, you know, the progressive mindset or any kind of mindset should focus more on Belarus because that's where the fight is. But I've noticed that um, just in general. Uh, yeah. uh, the summer had a very welcome development where a lot of kids, some for the first time, became very activist, like on their social media. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of uh, people on their Instagram profiles have uh, bios or links to, you know, mutual aid societies. Petitions. To, yeah, like, yeah, things like I that. often see, be updated on what's happening in the world, you know. And, um, 
then you know and it usually has like links to you know the the things that you would expect israel palestine you'd have like venezuela crisis uh, you have a um, you know like mexico immigration maybe syria um then you have like a few more like inter you know yemen is like a shocking humanitarian disaster often there uh, but in the last year, it was very interesting to see how, uh, you know, Belarus was never one of those links. Not a big tragedy, that just a, something that I think of, um, especially, you know, now we have a, had a, a huge uh, yeah. mobilization around Israel-Palestine. I doubt we'll have a similar mobilization about uh, Belarus. Yeah, Belarus is kind of like this weird um like exception outlier in in europe right because it's like you know it's just so so against the grain of like the other i mean you know just compared to the eu countries compared to its, yeah. its neighbors i mean well except uh, for russia yeah except yeah. for russia yeah i mean yeah it's honestly i don't know too much about about belarus but i think like a lot of people don't in in the u.s yeah. or in the west and it's just you don't hear too much about it, as you said yeah. like it's not a topic of, of conversation that comes up and yeah it sounds like there's all this like very uh it's like a difficult place to even criticize the regime like the, the, i also but, wonder yeah. i mean to what extent it feels like um like it's a it's 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 a lingering after unresolved issue from a fight that we sort of want to think as resolved like in a sense of you know um we being like the west or, or at least the u.s um, if, to the extent that you know this may be is mostly geared towards um i don't know who your follow uh, who your listeners are hello everybody either, okay. <laughs> yeah but uh you know just given that i know you from um first and foremost uh the u.s from our college um i imagine maybe many are american and um yeah well i mean russia is decidedly the battle of the past uh in a way you know the if the emergent future battle is china and i hate the language of battle but, you know, just for the purpose of the argument, like, that's how the narrative is being constructed. Uh, and I think falling yeah. into place, maybe not even constructed. Um, if, like, the big geopolitical rivalry, a lot of, like, the political project associated with it will be positioned against or relative to China. If the intervening period of, like, the, the, what is called often the unipolar moment of the U.S. being the one big power after the collapse of the Cold War, you know, had, like, different areas of focus on after 9-11 very significantly in the Middle East. But yeah, but, but Russia and the, like, the former Soviet Union is something like maybe we don't want to yeah, spend much more time yeah, about. Yeah. You know, like we did it. We, for most for most part, we should be done. Right. And there's no like, it's sort of like funding infrastructure. After you build the road, nobody wants to maintain it. You know, yeah. we, we built the bridge. Nobody benefits from just like the follow-up. I don't know. So maybe it's that, but I, I do wonder why, um, why they don't uh, think or care. But yeah. I, I, again, I don't want to sound complaining. I understand that. Again, I do think that the demographics, um, both in terms of how the young and younger generation of America looks like, but also what kind of memories and what kind of cultural narratives they inhabit, are alone enough to explain why other regions very very reason very very reasonably receive much more attention yeah yeah i mean you even hear about it with like celebrities right like a celebrity with 70 million followers on instagram will tweet or, or make a post make a story about a certain issue and then people will like that would just go viral and it's like you have like literally 
celebrities basically driving a lot of these movements and raising awareness, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself, but that does not at all guarantee an even coverage of attention yeah. across across all the issues. And yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's good to have, you know, well, like someone yeah. like you, who, for example, knows about the situation much better, you're coming from Lithuania, where you're, you're, you're looking into, you know, into Belarus with a, a much, much better perspective than, than I would, but who also is aware of the situation in the U.S. from your years yeah. studying in America, so... I mean, the main... Yeah. Just like, I'll, I'll add one more point to it, but I don't want to belabor the conversation in general. Belabor the point again. Um, I also think that, I mean, it is not to be assumed or expected that the U.S. will always be engaged in everything, nor is it good if they were. Right. So in some sense, you know, if it is true, the macro trend that the U.S. is not only turning away, pivoting away, as is commonly phrased, from Europe um, to, you know, the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, to China, but it often it's called the Indo-Pacific. You know, it's, whether it's um, high-level geopolitics or, you know, demographical change, demographic change, it's most likely both. Um, that is not to be considered only as a, oh, a loss. It's an opportunity slash a wake-up call for, you know, Europe to uh, be a little bit maybe more proactive about the values they declare to live by. Again, you know, this is not to uh, um, advocate for a sort of, you know, like this triumphalist democratic democratization theory, you know, like yeah. spread the good news, the good word yeah, yeah. elsewhere. But in a sense, you know, like if the trend is that the U.S. cannot or doesn't want to be that involved. You know, in, in some ways, maybe that's um, the U.S. Uh, maybe it's an opportunity for the specific, quite sometimes quite different instruments and resources um, that the EU has to step up or for the EU to step up with its different kinds, sometimes different kinds of levers, different kinds of uh, power instruments um, to promote goals, maybe not less like military-focused way, etc. So there, it may not be only a bad thing, but just because, I think, just because I, I imagine that uh, it might be some of our peers from U.S. colleges listening to it, my first thought was, like, um, I wonder how uh, to explain the sort of relative difference and um, attention to pay to this topic. But it doesn't matter. As I said, um, um, I think that point was uh, made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's just maybe pivot a bit and discuss yeah. sort of maybe how you got to this point where you know you're you're studying so okay, here we are cambridge i i didn't really introduce you properly we just jumped <laughs> right into geoguessr and you know clearly you're somebody who's very knowledgeable about these things so you study politics and international studies at, at cambridge um but before that you were at princeton which is where we met actually you were one of the first people that i met at princeton. that is true maybe not the first but one of the first because when i was doing the russian placement test on like day one of princeton and you were also doing it, then we like, I think randomly met in that like courtyard outside of yeah, Macaulay. See, it was always Russia all along the yeah. Russia is like, yeah, it's always, it's always connected. Yeah, it's like everything somehow comes, everything's connected. Everything's connected to the Wikipedia page on the United that States. That is very nice. That's a good connection. Yeah. Or, yeah, or yeah, everything comes back to GeoGuessr and just geography. And you know, geography is that. Actually, I read this book recently, Total Tangent, but called prisoners of geography it's yeah all the time have you read it popular phrase i haven't read it but yeah yeah it's basically just a popular popular yeah. like 
geopolitics book yeah, all yeah, about yeah, how yeah, like yeah. different regions in the world was are it totally like driven. Kaplan or what it, it may have been. Yeah, I don't remember the author, but yeah. it sounds familiar. Yeah, so so it kind of touches yeah. on a lot of things with yeah. the Rebuttal. It is interesting. Um, the whole. I don't want to go on another tangent. I will just <laughs> say that geopo- geopolitics is very much the lens um, that uh, is popular, if not if not like very seriously practiced, but it is a dominant frame in uh, of thinking about uh, um, international relations and international politics. If not in my region, then at least in Lithuania and Poland and the countries to which I have a good amount of exposure. And I wonder sometimes, you know, like the phrase you used, prisoners of geography, that's supposed to be universal, and to some extent it is. But uh, it is evidently clear that different countries feel geography geography much differently. You know, it is much, much more acutely felt in, uh, you know, Lithuania, for example, or Romania, uh, about which Kaplan uh, wrote, than like maybe the Netherlands or Belgium, at least nowadays. Um, so much like every other thing, context-specific. But yes, geography matters. Often many things come back to it. We go back to, however, Princeton, I'm sorry for interrupting. Oh, no, no worries. I, I started the tangent. But yes, okay. So you, so this is another sort of everything is connected kind of story. Because mm-hmm. so we met at Princeton, but it turns out that we're actually ended up being connected through a different connection too. <laughs> because so, you know, uh, I taught in Jacksonville for two years and one of my uh, colleagues slash housemates in Jacksonville for one of the years was Ray Lewis, not the football player Ray Lewis, but uh, Mr. Ray Lewis, who was a math, uh, sorry, a science and bio, like a biology and chemistry teacher uh, at the same school where I taught math. And also we coached cross country together. And he went to Ignatius uh, in Chicago, where he's now a teacher. So now he's Mr. Lewis there. And you were doing an exchange year there. What, what exactly? Because exactly. you ended up knowing Ray. And then I ended up being uh, a groomsman in Ray's wedding. And then we found out that we both had this mutual friend, like, way later. Yeah. Anyway, so how did you end up... What was your first time, like, coming to the yeah. U.S.? And can you just talk a bit about that? Let me just preface it, but with... Um, I love how uh, our uh, multiple interconnections background story just seems to exemplify that uh, a phrase I really love, which is, like, oh, the small world of uh, students of elite prestigious places, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's... Yeah. Like you always, you often get this feeling with like, oh, yeah, I know so many people that this person also knows. And yeah, well, you know, no Captain Obvious, it's because we're all in these like very tight, little, close-knit bubbles or yeah. networks. Um, that's not to say that, I mean, no bubble is, nobody's outside of a bubble. I don't mean it as a criticism, but yes, absolutely. We have a multiple overlaps and I think it's characteristic of a lot of people who inhabit certain these circles that we do um but yeah chicago was uh chicago 2011 2012 was the first time i was in america um my i went to a jesuit school in lithuania uh it's one of the two vilnius the capital has one and konas my hometown second city has the other um and the konas specifically the konas jesuit high school um had a sister school. I think it's still they are still considered sister schools, with the Saint Ignatius College, the Saint Ignatius College Prep in Chicago, and every year, I don't think that is the case anymore. But for the longest time, when I was a student and a little bit, of, for a good three four years after, something happened that, um, they would offer Chicago the school in Chicago would offer, to host one Lithuanian, um you know, tuition expenses covered 
for one year as an exchange student. Um, and a, a local family, a family of students of that school would host the person to provide them, you know, accommodation and food. Um, and I was just very lucky, I guess, uh, to be selected by my school as the, you know, person to be sent. Because there would, there would just only be an internal competition yeah. within the school. Well, not even competition. It was just like, there was no formal transparent process. It was usually given to a person who, uh, you know, like, it, it usually would be like either a very high achieving debater or some other extracurricular activity, but debating was the one of the key extracurricular groups in my school at the time. So often who was the most accomplished there would also be most accomplished overall extracurricular wise. But also, and very often, um, uh, student parliament, like presidents of the student parliament, student council, maybe in yeah. the US, um, which I happened to be um, the year before. So yeah, I got sent there. There was no other kind of competition. It was an insane struck, you know, insane um, strike of luck. I'm sorry. Str I yeah, stroke, stroke, stroke of luck. Stroke of luck. Yes. Yeah. Sorry for that. Oh, uh, it is late, and uh, we just played GeoGuessr, and however great it is, it's sometimes mind numbing. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little bit off. But uh, yeah, so I got sent to Chicago, and uh, I had a blast. It was a it was a great school. It was such a huge contrast in terms of workload, and quality of work, from my school in Lithuania, which was very good. It was a very good school in Lithuania. But before junior year, which I spent in Chicago, maybe the longest essay I wrote for school was upwards of like a thousand page, me tops. Thousand words. I thousand, oh, so, 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 sorry, yeah, thousand. <laughs> a thousand pages, goodness. No, 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 <laughs> thousand words, two pages, yeah. And it would be like family or something, like it would be very, very simple. And uh, I remember going to Chicago and uh, um, I, I, I took AP macro, my fall semester and uh yeah and it was like a 12 a 12 page essay on like the great financial crisis which was well, you know what do i do with it so it was a huge chunk in that way but in other in many other ways it felt very intuitive america i mean and chicago specifically i, I stayed with a wonderful family sort of outside of chicago just in one of the sort of western close suburbs called lagrange loved that place Love the family, thank them for hosting me. Um, and um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I think Lithuania generally always had, the Lithuanian culture had an aspiration or sort of a certain romantic vision of America, at least at the time. And I got a lot of exposure just passively, maybe, you know, through cinema, through just like general pop culture. I watched WWE wrestling, um, which it's not like super significant, but it's a quite unique. It's more unique than Hollywood that you like wrestling, I think, if you're a European. And uh, yeah, so a lot of in a lot of ways, I felt intuitively drawn and sort of I found it easy to navigate the U.S., which then made me more willing to uh, return there for college, especially because my school, the Chicago the St. Ignatius offered to, you know, help out, uh, well, they just give some consulting on, in terms of uh, college admissions, because we didn't have any 
like sort of our school didn't have college advisors, what yeah, you call them. Yeah. Um, so just like, yeah, there were like small things that uh, helped me a lot. And the experience overall helped me like visualize a little bit better what it would mean to study in the US. I never visited Princeton before going there. But it was it felt already kind of not familiar, but at least I sort of I understood what yeah I've been getting into. So yeah, uh, so Chicago an incredibly important part of my life. It's it's now the tenth year since I was there. Wow, crazy! It is insane. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it, uh, when I was leaving after the year, I spent the whole year without a break in the U.S. and in the summer of twenty twelve, was going back, and for all I knew at that time, like. You know, as far as I was concerned, it was my one and final shot, perhaps, yeah. at the U.S. And then uh, within uh, five months, I was back for, to, uh, uh, as part of the Lithuanian Model UN delegation, um, which the Model UN Society that we founded, uh, me and a friend of mine who was uh, an exchange student to the same Chicago school the year before me, um, we both uh, founded that place, and then I got to go as part of this newly found thing back to Chicago, back to a conference hosted in the city, attended by the by my school, etc. Um, I did not expect coming back that that would be a possibility, but I do think that it, and I I bring it up only because uh, I think it uh, like it signals a certain change in how I related to like what is possible in the world maybe yeah, yeah. Uh, because again as I, I honestly you know uh, Hunty Hart did think that uh, this will be like this one beautiful year that I will you know cherish and remember forever but I had no like concrete understanding that I would come back that America could become a part of my life more permanently yeah and then within five months it was not only possible but like I was on the plane so it was a huge, yeah, a watershed moment, I think it's called. And then in some ways, then Princeton wasn't as drastic, I think, mm, just because already of the St. Ignatius experience, yeah. which relative to the prior academic experience was more shocking than Princeton relative to St. Ignatius. But also in terms of like, just sort of like what it opened up for me. Yeah. And granted, no, it's, I mean, all these elite colleges that I try to be a little bit ironic about it, have that like weight of prestige on them and it matters you see it yeah and then sometimes i'm not very comfortable with it but like i know that I, i'm treated as a little bit more serious a little bit more seriously than my peers in lithuania some of them in like these policy circles or something because of that at princeton edu and it's a strange feeling um but um so it, of course it did matter as well going to college there um uh, but i think the it is truly a watershed moment, the, the school in St. Ignatius. And the wonderful people like Ray Lewis, as you can attest, you know, make the, make the case for why it was a good school. Hey, it was Ray, also, if you're listening, we love you, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's not a... It, we shouldn't paint only a rosy picture. It also introduced me to, like, the deep corruption of the private or Catholic, but like a private school in the U.S. You know, it had, it had all the qualities of... Know, high achieving polo khaki kind of kids but also like the deep filth of a uh, kids who are bored rich sleazy and uh 
otherwise. So uh, I don't want to say that it was uh, all just incredible and empowering, though it was in many ways. And it's not disempowering to also see the latencies, yeah. as any, I think, person attending one of our colleges would have yeah. also yeah. attest. It is good to see what the elite kids Yeah, and if you like didn't see it in high school, you would certainly see it at Princeton when you, yeah. when you arrived, so, yeah. Um, Okay, cool. So then you were at Princeton, and then, you know, you studied there, as you said, you sort of were already kind of, you had this experience in the U.S., it wasn't a total shock. Okay, but then you did take some time off when you were at Princeton to, you were working for like, was it a year, or? It was uh, a year and a, a half. Year and I half. traveled okay. for uh, six months um, during the time I went to, well, I did like Pacific Northwest, but then, yeah, I returned to Lithuania and worked for a year and a half. I, uh, um... I did two things. One is I like very consciously felt like before I finish college, I need to do something outside of my field, which, and outside of the activities that I'm very familiar with, which are like all politics related, whether from the research angle, from the analysis angle, or from, I did a internship in the, in the civil service and diplomacy. So whether from active or more analytic side, but it's still politics. But I thought I just need to also experience something that's just like a straight up, you know, private company. Not because I necessarily think that's better. I don't. Well, it rather it's it, it's a moot point if it's better or not. <coughs> Impossible to say. We need both. But whether it's better for me or not, I don't think it's better for me. But I had never had that. I needed it. I think. And I, in retrospect, I do think that it was also very very important um, to just. Yeah, well, to work in a, a work that a, this is how I used to phrase it. I've not thought, talked about, uh, I've not discussed my work in a long time now, um, because this is a very academically minded place. We talk about, uh, you know, uh, ontologies, but not necessarily about, uh, you know, work experience. Yeah. Um, but uh, I said that it is good to be in a place, like in an organization, that cannot assume its persistence. It cannot conceive of itself as overlapping, unfolding over eternity, which I think is all often the case with like state institutions, with the civil service. Yeah. Nobody's gonna fire the state, you know, in like an unprecedented, not unprecedented, but in a sort of, in an extreme case of collapse, sure, but that's very rare. Yeah. Um, not really often. And then the same with like universities, you know, universities don't tend to go like bankrupt and just bust, and especially those which we navigated through. Um, so in either of those two places, it's a different kind of relation to the work. Whereas, you know, when you're at a small company, as I was in like a little boutique, sort of strategic relations management, it was called, which is like PR with, sorry, PR with some business consulting. Um, you know, if you're not performing really well every month, Within three months, you might not be performing at all. So it was very interesting. Yeah. It was it was and it was just nice. Um, it felt more immediate, maybe. Um, but I also I didn't simultaneously with that knowing that I wanted to go there. I also didn't want to go too far away from my um, primary field, and I also wanted because I was back in Lithuania, I wanted to root myself a little deeper in it. Um, establish partnerships with the local think tanks yeah because i thought at the time irrespective of whether i stay go elsewhere etc think tanks 
thrive on these like kind of partnerships and kind of you know if I can produce a policy report in a field that maybe others don't or something that is good for them good for me fun to just know these people again like it is through these connections that are better and best ideas maybe come about so um yeah I joined the first one then a, another um foreign policy think tank in Lithuania to do some like policy analysis mostly on the EU um so yeah so that was that and then I returned to Princeton to uh uh, you know, wrap it up, uh, have a normal year. And then, of course, end. COVID hits. And then a COVID hit, <laughs> uh, which I ended up kind of liking because uh, it allowed me to really just be with the university. You know, I, I already coming back in, I was older, and uh, a lot of my closest friends, uh, well, a lot of my closest friends had graduated already when I was a junior. So in some ways, it was already easier to leave just because of that. Um, and then obviously our year graduated and, and then the year um, after I didn't have that many I had some very strong connections but I didn't have numeric that large of a number so by the time I got back I really wasn't socially embedded uh, in, with the class but I did have like you know five years essentially of a connection with the place with, and with some of the professors but with the place um, I knew it really well um, and to be able to be in an op open, well, I mean, restricted, yes, but so like in a campus that is mostly, you know, like all walkable, it's all there, um, that you know so well and that it is almost completely empty. And it retains fewer than 10% of its student population. Like you could see how the nature took over. We had deer in the courtyards. Wow. I had a, like, I, I would often just go down to my courtyard deer in the courtyards wow that's a sight i never saw in four yeah, years ago. uh if you know if you remember uh, the listeners from princeton know the 1903 courtyard yeah, yeah, yeah um just very very centrally i would that was my dorm last final year i would uh go down to you know like read on a bench there and uh like a fox was like laying next you know five meters over and they're like little birds would fly down. Wow. It was like a Disney movie. Nature's healing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seemed kind of like that. So uh, it was a wonderful time. Ultimately, I know that it's uh, a highly atypical experience, and I'm I'm very much sad uh, for all those friends that I you know never ended up making. Uh, but uh, all the people for whom it was their like final capstone year of the four continuous years of college experience that they wanted to see it through. Of course, that's a huge loss. I don't want to say that, uh, oh, no, you should not feel bad. You should just see it differently. But it, given the very highly idiosyncratic circumstances that I had, it ended up being really nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 a very, I guess, unique experience. Like, I always felt sort of bad for the, the class of 2020 yeah. because, like, sort of their senior year was sort of, like, hit by COVID and all that stuff. But, like, you were, in, I guess, in a unique situation where, as you said, you were older coming back from this time working and sort of had this, I guess, unique detachment and not, like, in a bad way where you could sort of yeah. just, you know, maybe have a different approach. I also think, I mean, a big way in which it is a bad year where it's considered a bad year. Like, if you deconstruct that saying of, like, oh, we didn't get a proper year, yeah, a, a proper way to finish, that 
mostly just means you finish differently than others. Yeah. And like a lot of the value implied in that sentence is that it is valuable to have the same experience as everybody else. Right, right. Whereas that's maybe not true. Yeah. Maybe it is and in retrospect, you know, like when we think about it more broadly and you know, with a foresight of twenty years, Princeton has as many listeners who are familiar with the school know the reunions, you know, huge. I mean, we are very likely to be one of the two classes that have had this experience over like 200 years, you know, uh, and it's, um, you know, m- maybe there's a value in having something so unique to your college experience that is inherently interesting and valuable, even if it's not the same and you didn't get the perks that others got, but, uh, but they also don't have this relationship with the college that you have. So I don't know. I mean, again, this may be just me self-therapeuting. Yeah. Uh, but I want to say that, yeah, like, I didn't get what my peers got. But at the same time, nobody for 70 years since World War II got to experience, got to be in Princeton in that moment or in any other college in that moment going through that. So I don't know. Yeah, I think... I mean, yeah, yeah. I think that's a healthy way to reframe it. it. Yeah. Like, I mean, even here, right? At Cambridge, I haven't had a single, like, in-person class or anything. Yeah. But because we're all doing everything virtually and we have these lockdowns, we're not allowed to interact with people from outside our households until very recently. I think I got much closer with my housemates and the people that I lived with than I otherwise would have. You know, we all had our busy lives and joined a bunch of clubs and we're always off at class and meeting people at pubs and doing this and that. You know, I don't think we would have gotten as close with oh people God, that I no. with. So, you know, I, yeah, I think, as you said, it's like a self-therapeutic thing. Maybe it's just me saying this to make myself feel better. But I think it's, there's truth to that, right? It's yeah. a matter of perspective of, of how you I mean, But you can't, at the end of the day, you are barely, it is hard to lie to yourself, especially like before you fall asleep, the truth gets to you. You know, like if you've been lying to yourself, there will be a moment where, where it cracks. But, and if you, at that moment, feel happy, then it's not self-therapeutic that you are just enjoying the time. Like, I love Cambridge under lockdown. Again, I feel sorry for people who had a different experience. But for me, it allowed to be much more focused, as you said, on uh, the few friendships that I made. Yeah. But also, I mean, yeah, uh, how do I say? I don't know. Like, I I lost the ability to go to formals, which is a... somehow unne- seemingly unnecessarily constrained dinner that you pay for and then have to wear a robe that you otherwise would never wear and then you have to wait until the elders eat first something that's in general unappealing and this when the larger circumstances remove the expectation it is easier to just make a case of like i wouldn't want it either way yeah so yeah. i don't know i mean i don't consider much of a yeah, much there to be lost and what I seem to have gained, um, especially in the interpersonal sphere, I attribute to some extent specifically to the, like the pandemic simplification, to the Mary Kondo effect of COVID-19. Mary COVID. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely, I guess I do, obviously, while feeling for all the people who've suffered and lost loved ones and all that and suffered economically, like that's all very true and sad but at the same time like it's been a reality for over a year now and you know at this point i feel like you can no longer use the excuse to yourself of like 
oh, well, it's a pandemic, so, like, it's okay that I'm miserable. It's like, we're at the point now where, yeah, maybe things are starting to get better. But, like, at some point in there, maybe, hopefully, there was some sort of mental switch where, you know, people said to themselves, I'm going to try to make the most of this in some way. Yeah. Or, like, I have all this time at home. Maybe I'm going to invest more time into my family. Or maybe I'm going to, like, learn a new skill. Or maybe I'm going to, like, you know... Like, even... For start example, a podcast. Start a podcast. I mean, the only reason <laughs> I did that is because it was lockdown, and yeah. I, like, missed people, and I wanted to, like, talk... And I was like, well, this is a good excuse to yeah. like, you know, just call up old people and just like have these conversations that I otherwise uh, wouldn't have. And I don't know, there's something about the intentionality of being like, okay, yeah, we need to sit down and like set aside a time for a podcast, which I think lends itself to, yeah, I mean, just reconnecting in a way that, um, you know, before the, before the pandemic, when I had as much freedom as I wanted to talk to anyone, I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't. Yeah, I think um, I always say this when I, I mean, and this is a sign of the times, but uh, the conversation we're having now is a, a popular one to have during COVID. Yeah. I mean, I've had it, and I value it still, but I've, I've said most of the sentences that I've just said to you multiple times before o- over this year. Yeah. Uh, and that's because, yeah, a lot of people are, I think, processing these, sub, uh, these same things, these same questions. Uh, first, let me just say that, yeah, obviously, like the margin at which I'm operating is whether, you know, just like, how badly your college experience has been affected by sort of like you know classes being on on or offline and like colleges being less or more accessible uh you know there's there's it goes without saying that uh, if uh you know the economic stress the health scares and sometimes the very real losses make this a significant like a super hard experience for many but just at, at, at the like at the level of uh you know, well, oh, Cambridge is not what I expected it to be. Level, I do think that um, there can be, and one should strive to reinterpret and uh, to use this opportunity to interpret what a, a college experience uh, can be, um, or more generally, what you want and expect um, from a sort of, yeah, you know, from how you relate and interact with your environments. But in these conversations that we often have during the pandemic times, I often remember what a um, um, very early on, Pope Francis said, which I think at the time was still a phrase made uh, with the expectation, at least against the background of the expectation that it would be short-lived. It was, you know, early March 2020. And he said something along the lines of, like, just imagine how much you will value, like, how much you will appreciate a hug afterwards. You will, It will not be the same thing. And uh, maybe to to learn to appreciate something like that, even if, you know, the process of learning to appreciate it is hard and uncomfortable and difficult and involves denial for a while. But to then have that appreciation for a while and, you know, assuming that you upkeep it, maybe it's worth it. Or not so much worth it, but like there's no choice in having or not having the pandemic, it just happened to us. But then maybe that's like a very sort of reasonable um challenge to assume for yourself to, uh, to, to, to sort of, um, to see how you can rediscover, uh, you know, the many little things in life that, uh, otherwise would maybe just like not seem to not be worth your consideration, but just how much joy they can contain and they can mm-hmm. generate. And I absolutely, I think that a chatting, you know, whether in podcast form or otherwise is one of those things that, um, I just see 
people are appreciating somewhat differently. And especially for people like, you know, the perpetually distracted nation of America, <laughs> um, which is by now a global condition on the phone. Maybe that's also good. But um, yeah, I don't want to, you know, wax lyrical about this. But um, I do agree with the sentiment that there has been many opportunities to discover or rediscover things in a way that actually highlights that there is much more joy in your even everyday life than you maybe otherwise thought. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even think this is like a pandemic-specific thing. I think it's just like any difficulty in general should, I think, have that impact on you. I mean, in a previous podcast, someone asked me like, what do I think is, I asked them, what do you think is the meaning of life? And they asked it back to me. And um, I didn't really have a great answer, but I did talk about how like the sense of wonder, I think it's yeah. similar to what you're saying about like discovering the sense like of that. wonder and like the little things, right? Where, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a pandemic or not. Like you have to have some sort of like motivation. When, when you wake up in the morning, like what gets you out of bed? What What is it that you, you, you know, you're out there that makes you want to want to live, right? And And whether it's a pandemic or not, you need something that's gonna like empower you to do that, yeah. to say, I wanna go find a beautiful thing or whatever. And Do you remember, just because so much of our conversation has already been kind of grounded in some ways uh, or related uh, to Princeton, do you remember the pre-read, the book that uh, the university yeah, president me- sent meaning out? Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. Exactly. By, uh, uh, Susan Wolf, was it? Susan Wolf, yes, exactly. But yeah, um, so it is interesting that you brought up meaning of life because there it says meaning in life and the way that that is explained is very close to what you just said, in a sense that uh, you know, maybe if, if you phrase it as, if you frame it as what is the meaning of life, you might come up with a vacuous or a, an interesting or sometimes, you know, sort of FM ineffable answer. But if you uh, reframe it as in life, and then you just point to like, you know, these uh, process things like sense of wonder, you know, flow, establishing a flow, uh, finding ways in which you can, you know, interact positively with your environment, uh, synergy in the, you know, business or the lingo, um, then, you you know, then that sense of fulfillment, at least, not, if not meaning, yeah. but a meaning in life appears or can be discovered or can be created. Um, so like that, I will say one more thing about the pre-read. It is just because, again, maybe this goes to the larger topic of uh, what our conversation ended up being about. Um, which is like the sign of times and the, you know, and how they change and how we go through these different uh, periods to which we are exposed to different big events. Um, if, uh, you know, just imagine like we had a meaning in life, the next year I think it was Whistling Vivaldi or something like a book about uh, like diversity yeah. and like celebration of thereof. And then it was, what is populism? Yeah. Then it was our constitution and why like it matters that we uphold it. Yeah. That it was maybe speaking Speak freely. freely. Yeah. yeah, but it's just like, it seems like we've gone through a lot in, yeah. in the five years. <laughs> you know, if, if you go from meaning in life to like, what are these populists that we're combating within two years? That's an interesting time to be a it college was interesting. student. Yeah, it, it was funny. Like the pre-read was always something that caused a lot of controversy. I mean, I remember like meaning in life and why it matters. Like her point, I think I agree with, but no one really liked the book. I think it was just like a difficult book to read as like an incoming yeah. college freshman and maybe just not aimed at, I don't know, it was a very, it was sort of philosophical and used some jargon and also I just didn't think it was that greatly written. Um, and then her presentation when she came, I think just, yeah. I don't know, it was, she had to speak in front of a crowd of a thousand freshmen. It was a rough, like, it was a rough I day. Remember, yeah. Uh, but anyway, like. And, you know, 
not importantly, not just freshmen. It was like very, very early on, meaning that none of those freshmen had realized yet that, you know, they're living in illusions of grandeur that were enabled by their success in high school and whatever. They were all the biggest fish in their respective ponds. And they were, I remember like I was shocked by how like stupid but ambitious the questions launched that wolf where by our fellow classmates they were like well did you consider this and that you you could only have that if you're a very very old person and you sort of just like know you're sort of like so set in your ways that you know what life you think that know what life is or the very very early on in your career before you were just like confronted with the fact that uh, all these great discoveries that you think you're going through is literally everybody's experience at the turn. Okay, this is interesting because, yeah, I feel like I I hit this thing too, I think. And yeah. I'm glad to hear it's not just me. It's a universal experience. I don't know if that's comforting or... Let's just say it's comforting. But, yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's like you come in, you think you're, you know, you think you're a big deal and, you know, you were in high school. And there's this, like, nurturing side of adults who want to be really nice to kids and who are always like, oh, you can do anything you want and, like, just very kind. And that's that's beautiful that we want to be so kind and nurturing. But then you get to like a place where everyone feels like that. And then you just sort of hit with reality, which is that, you know, not everyone can be special in the way that you imagine. Yes, everyone can be special in some unique way, but you know, you can't all be special in the ways that you imagine yourself to be. Maybe um, just not in the high school ways. Not in the high school way. Yeah. And then the meaning of life question comes up, right? Because I think like, you know, I think because you haven't really lived that much yet at that age, you haven't had to face the question perhaps in the same ways. Of course, everyone thinks about it and a teenager is perfectly capable of thinking about meaning of life and why it matters but you know there was a, just a lot more regime and like you know um like yeah. routine in, in your schedule right like you, you go to yeah. school you do this and you get good grades and you go to college and all that stuff um and then suddenly it's like you know the the options from there just branch out into like basically yes. infinite possibilities and you really are confronted with the the meaning question right because yeah. you can do whatever you want you could yeah. you know i know people from princeton who didn't finish and just go and did something else or people who you know tried finance for a year and then ended up quitting and then becoming a teacher or like whatever you know, whatever it is like you can do whatever you want no one's stopping you you're free and then yeah. i think that makes the paralysis tougher because then you yeah i remember when i was returning well let me first just say one more thing because that sort of moment of um uh reflection after making a maybe an outlandish point about it I I stand by it, but it is an outlandish point about, uh, you know, the, the mentality of that freshman crowd at the presentation. I mean, also, you know, it's, how to say, the environment, the context itself also creates, a, engenders a certain behavior yeah. in a sense that the kids who raise the question may not always actively think of themselves as the you know the, the coolest kid on the block or something because of their success in high school etc we don't really i don't really know if they were that if they felt fit that caricature though it is just statistically likely but you know but it's also like there's a uh, element of performance performativity to being a guy who asks questions especially if it's a guy who yeah. asks questions uh, who asks questions um so i i'm sensitive to the fact that maybe like the kids who did it also, you know, wanted to perform to their peers, etc. Um, that being said, this is immaterial, but I wanted to highlight that, uh, that it's it maybe not a, so automatic or so, how to say, 
so, so it's like inherently logical. Maybe there was like this little contingency of just like the space and the event uh, itself um, dictating the behavior, but I was struck well by the memory that I just shared. Um, but um, um, but you're the, the the point that you just made. Um, I can again answer with another little anecdote. I remember how when I was returning back to my senior year, um, I kept a, a pretty orderly journal. I since um, abandoned the habit and I regret it, but I just, I, I, I don't like the journal that I currently have. It's a really nice book, mm -hmm. but it, it's not comfortable to write in. Mm. And I, I have some journal recommendations for you. Yeah. Kids, but uh, yeah, sorry, continue. Well, I never really bought them. I would either found them, find them somewhere or like, yes, I know that I could very easily buy a moleskin that would be very comfortable, but I was also not my relation to it. Well, I don't know. Doesn't matter. I'm making excuses. Maybe I just don't have the willpower right now to uh, keep the habit. But um, at the time I did, and um, I remember I was waiting for a friend of ours from our class who had, by the time, you know, had been a graduate for a year, and we were just about to meet up in New York. She was a little late, so I was just in, I think, Washington Square Park, writing something down, and I was thinking about, I think it was loosely this. It is. It feels very weird to be coming back to a place where everybody will be rushing towards the place from which you're returning. In a sense that, you know, even though I had that prospect of re I will be returning back uh, from my last year, um, but for the time being, I mean, it was just what the rest of your life is, which is just, you know, no agenda except for what you created and like what you're basic sort of like survival plus like assist your family maybe needs dictate but otherwise you know yeah there isn't there is no like strict sort of institutional supervised regime of like do this and do that and do that um and you yeah you have that like i don't know if it creates a sense of autonomy or agency it did for me but uh, um it need not uh but there is no like next thing that is scheduled you know as it is in college midterms yeah, and yeah, yeah. finals and so but but princeton i always felt in the first three years and then definitely in the last year i felt it had very much that forward momentum of like do the next thing you know obviously enjoy your best four years life uh four years of life which is such a sad phrase by the way um but um but yeah but like on to what's next what's next yeah. forward momentum and i i, I just felt it I see that like I was not apprehensive, but intrigued and a little bit maybe apprehensive uh, about that fact. Of, like, I'll yeah. be back to a place where everybody will be in the, deep in the recruitment process. Yeah. Who? Where are you going? What's the school? What? Where? Where not? Yeah, it's always something like long term or like something delayed gratification to like one day achieve a goal, yeah. which is great and like that. That is something that people achieve amazing things with that mentality, right? Of like delayed mm -hmm. gratification, push it off, like plan for something, you know, what do I need to get this job? And then what's after that? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? It's kind of like yeah. that marshmallow study where they, they have the kids and you have like one kid who gets yeah. one marshmallow yeah. and the other kid has to wait 30 minutes and gets two marshmallows. It's like, yeah, like that will help you achieve things in life. But I also have come to sort of believe that if you can't be happy for one day, you can't be happy for your life. You know what I mean? Like, you know, thinking that like, okay, I'm going to just mm -hmm. one day I'll achieve everything. <laughs> and I'll be set and then I'll be happy. 
Well, the reality yeah. is you probably won't be happy then, you know? Yeah. Like, be happy today. Yeah. I'm not saying, like, ignore all your responsibilities and don't, like, but, like, find a way to be happy in what you do yeah. tomorrow. Or, yeah. like, let's say you're given a free day. You just have a Saturday and you don't have anything planned. If you can't find a way to be happy on that day, then I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be hard to be There's happy. that uh, movie, I think it's called Booksmart by Olivia Wilde. Her I haven't seen it yet, but I want to see it. But it has a, uh, I mean, it, like it, it start, its premise is that this, the protagonist is maybe going to Yale or some like very, very good school. She's so excited. And, and she thinks of herself as much better than her peers yeah. because uh, she got into this place. And then she finds out quite randomly, like a, over here is in the bathroom conversation, that all of those kids who like she thought are like dumb idiots who are just like partying away their high school years instead of studying all got into the same schools. And then one of them is just like, yeah, it's just not the only thing we accomplished. Yeah. So that's one. And I don't, I mean, obviously that's like, that's a movie foil that, that is to make a point. But, um, but I do think that that's maybe one way to see it. But another, I just remember this is a, just like a purely anecdotal story, but I hope the meditation there and closed in it has some resonance. Um, I went to San Pellegrino of the mineral water fame. Uh, it's a small town, uh, like northwest, I think, of uh, Milan, and uh, in Italy. And uh, I was there with a friend of mine. It was his birthday. He was in Europe. Uh, he's American. He's from Chicago, Saint Ignatius. Um, anyway, we, he was in Milan with his family, and then I flew in, and then we went to um, San Pellegrino, and um, it's it's a gorgeous place. It's an incredible place, and it's in a river valley between two big mountains. And we climbed one of those, you know, like not the, to the top of the mountain, but like halfway up there. Um, and, uh, and there's like a little church at the, like, at whatever the, 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 that plateau is, mm-hmm. that, that little peak. And it's just, it's just an idyllic sight, you know, like you see that huge mountain on the other side, you see the town well below, you see everything, you know, all these other smaller peaks, etc. And it just, and, and there's a little, like, Italian stone church perched up on top of it. It's picture perfect. And we sat down, we had, a, you know, we had like, a nice lunch there. And I was thinking at that time, like, this, like, literally could not be more perfect for, like, what, what we wanted to experience. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, like, the second I had that thought, I saw a different spot, maybe, like, 200 meters away, that just like was like beautifully sunlit, you know, like it was like sort of in the shade, but like the yeah. concentrated sunlight. I was like, I wonder what uh, maybe we should be looking there. Yeah, yeah. And the second I thought like this is the perfect spot, um, and I think it's you know maybe it's a little bit of that. Um, and I think as you correctly said, like that drive, that uh, appetite, is good. It's conducive to accomplishment, but it's also just generally like it's where maybe vitality, dynamism of human life that I think are very important comes from that come from those two things but um but yeah it is i think also very important to uh how to say well to know that there will always be the next thing and at some point uh you know um well then the next possible thing will never end it will just be you who's incapable of uh getting to the next thing so, so sort of preemptively maybe it is important to also practice the habit of being content being happy where you are because um you know because i don't think that ever precludes also moving on to the next thing but just because 
the infinite amount of next things is infinite and is inexhaustible. You're doomed to fail if you always chase it. But you can't have both enjoyment in the moment and uh, a healthy amount of forward momentum. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I think I don't think that most people truly don't find that balance. I think most, at least in, in what is by now my friend group, most people, and maybe that's just self-selected, but most people seem to have that balance. I don't, I, I'm happy to say that I don't have any just like pure like f forward momentum kind of people. Everybody seems to be uh, intuitively drawn to, a, you know, both happiness and contentment. Yeah. 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 Life sort of has ways of like nudging you in the right direction, right? Like, let's say, you know, you're pursuing this career, but like, let's say you have children or something. And maybe those children might, might help you appreciate like just the little joys in life or something and not worry too much about like your career advancement. Um, or maybe you... I mean, I think children probably are a huge joy, at, the, at least to people who want it. Yeah. I don't know if it's... I mean, yes, of course, like little joys isn't like, oh, the kid who comes and like draws like a painting of three basic colors and two crayons. Um, three crayons, I guess. Uh, but... Uh, this is just me being pedantic, it doesn't matter. I understand your point and I agree. Yeah, or just, yeah, whatever other little things happen. I mean, even like what you said about like the pandemic earlier, right? Like how that might nudge someone in a certain direction. And, you know, like there will be things, like we don't know what the world is going to look like in 10 years, 20 years. Like we just don't know. We don't know what jobs will exist, what jobs will cease to exist. We don't know what countries will be fighting. We don't know, you know, who we're going to end up getting married to. We don't, we don't know a lot of things, right? Um, so... You know, you can't plan it all, all out in advance. You just sort of have to... I mean, this sounds so trite and just like people... Like, you know, life is a journey or whatever. But I, I do think that, you know, you just sort of have to like... Um, be open to the fact that you don't know the ending yet. And you can't... Yeah. Like, okay. I think... If not a... If not as a an agenda, as a program, then purely as a self-defense mechanism... <laughs> Because, yes, you can't. Is there a difference? Yeah, I mean, like, maybe all of life is just our self-defense mechanisms that not feel too bad about ourselves. Yeah. yeah. All right, any, uh, so any last, I guess, um, words of wisdom? What do I always try to ask people? I, we kind of got to meaning of life. You gave me a movie recommendation. Uh, <laughs> one thing I do ask sometimes is a book recommendation. Book so recommendation. Anything I should, I should read that um, you want to leave me Well, with? just because of how we of the sort of the, the concepts that I think um, lie under a lot of the things that we discussed, especially in the second half. Um, I think um, a book that's called Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity is an intuitive recommendation. It's a Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. Yeah, it's, wow. a, it's a book of philosophy. It's, it is, um, it's by this guy, Richard Rorty. Um, he, uh, this guy is underselling him. He's a he's a very highly accomplished American philosopher, but um it is the most popular book of his, maybe not the most academically celebrated. But that has the benefit you know, whatever like flaws that has it, limitations that has in terms of not being like super mega rigorous. Yeah. Though it is quite rigorous. Um it has the upsides of accessibility and sort of like really the core of it his argument to the general audience. Uh, but yeah, but it is a book about, uh, well, I mean, contingency of a self-community language of a 
the things through which we navigate like oh i gotta read this this sounds right up my alley um yeah and then, um, check it out leading to irony which is you know it's not a nihilism it's not to be well, and nothing matters therefore and you know whatever but um just being a little bit you know maybe the more popular word nowadays is maybe reflexivity um but yeah but like about but it's there's more to it uh, irony is not just reflexivity um but it is, I think, well explained in their book. Uh, and then ultimately solidarity, which I think is a key operative term there, in a sense that uh, if, uh, if everything is quite contingent, and if you practice irony towards yourself and the way you navigate life, if you, know, you understand that even the most deeply cherished values, they may in some ways hang on to some ineffable eternal things, but you only ever access it through highly contingent sort of, you know, your linguistic practices, your communal practices, etc. Um, so if you have that feeling, it is hard to guide yourself according to, uh, you know, like some like objective guides towards how you relate to other people. But solidarity is still possible. It's, you know, it's no longer, ah, you represent the eternal truth of our creator, even though I may believe it. But, uh, but I can still be in solidarity with you even if I don't have that, that second element of like there is something objective behind it. Um, so yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it, uh, that book has made, it definitely has made a huge impact on me and a, a lot of my friends will attest that I blabber on too much about Rorty in, in general. Uh, but I also think now looking back on this last hour of our chat that um, some of the things I said betray that uh, the the ways that book has impacted my thinking so contingency yeah. well, it's only one way for you to find out yeah i'll have to read it and, and but yeah no it sounds like it does touch upon some of the things we've talked about or just even previous conversations we had mm -hmm. right with sort of this you know struggling with the cosmopolitanism of the current world and the fact that you have so many options compared to like perhaps our great 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 grandparents you know and just there's so much more that you sort of have to like answer for um of like what what are you doing with your life um, yeah. but then I, I want to say to the listeners yeah. that that sounds like we've mostly had like incredibly sort of <clears throat> conversations that well dealt with the struggles of oh so lucky people oh ah we're First so empowered yeah I don't I mean we've had many other kinds of conversations that also relate to you and um, you know we both navigate through life while being exposed to a very strong rigorous and long-standing um, cultural moral system that is Catholicism while still being quite sensitive to like just the sheer amount of like different alternative um, outlooks on life as well as aware of some of the historical contingencies that led to what we now access as Catholicism where I do think also you know for yeah, example I've definitely heard Rorty's name mentioned in some yeah. of those circles as well um, so it, it's not only about cosmopolitanism and how do we navigate the world but uh We've had those conversations as well. We've had conversations about urban planning and how it's nice to live in walkable cities. Yes. And I'm sure that the listeners have uh, only had a brief snippet of uh, our conversations. But, um, yeah, not to get too mad. Uh, I just did wanted to clarify that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I think that it is accurate about part of what our broader discussions are like. What you described, I 
don't think it's it quite exhausting. Oh yeah, I wasn't trying to suggest that. Yeah, okay, it, good. It, it was that's all we talk about. Certainly not. Um, but yeah, no, the the solidarity I think is the key thing that where yeah. it ends up where it's like you know. I think so too. Um, there's there's a lot in that that sometimes it feels like that's what we're missing. Do you have a book recommendation to me, oh. or Oof. is that not a practice? Oh well, yeah, it's a fair question, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if I have a book recommendation. You can have a movie. I, recommendation. I have books. Well, I love lots of movie recommendations. I have, yeah. Uh, I talk about my movies that I like all the time. So I'm actually working on a, a, a blog post. I don't know what I'm going to publish, mm -hmm. maybe never, because it's full of spoilers. But it's basically my top three favorite movie scenes of all time. And there are, I, the reason I like all, each of these scenes I like for some sort of deeper, either philosophical or yeah. moral point that's made, and not just like, not just the cinematography, which in all three cases is very beautiful. But okay, I'll just tell you the three, three movies. Okay. So um, one is To the Wonder by Terrence Malick. Okay. Um, which is uh, have you heard of Terrence Malick? Oh yeah, I, I've yeah. seen um, what is the like Tree of Life, Tree of uh, Life, yeah. and then um, uh, Badlands or what Badlands. Yeah, yep, is another one. Um, yeah, so um, beautiful cinematography to the wonder, basically love story, but so much more. It's sort of analogizes everything through this one love story. Is there really anything more than a love story? Yeah, <laughs> like a love story is massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll just have to see I it. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. The, the scene in question is actually not really, doesn't really focus on the couple exclusively. Yeah, it does yeah, feature yeah. No, I got what you meant. I just but wanted yeah. to be cheeky. One of the uh, one of the other main characters is actually a priest. Okay. Sort of, in a sense, is the furthest you could get from the love, the, the love story of the couple because he's, you know, this celibate priest, you know, just spending time with old people and prisoners yeah. and things like that. But actually, there's these very deep parallels throughout them in the whole movie. And so the scene mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. in particular, that I love is the final scene of the movie, which he sort of just is interwoven in the two storylines. Um, okay, so that's that's number three. Number two um, would probably be uh, there's this movie, The Great Beauty. Of course, yeah. Yeah, have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite recently, Paolo yeah. Sorrentino, yeah. So there's also the ending scene of that movie. Oh, yeah. So yes, the yes, last yes. five minutes yeah. where he's just uh, with the lighthouse and with the girl. Or, yeah. You know. And with the the boat, the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's impressive. Um, and then the music, oh, the John Taverners, um, yeah. the Lamb, um, sort of. All three of these scenes, independently, which I came to like, have in common. Wait, that's the last movie? Uh, what was the last movie? No, that was the second one. Sorry. Okay. I, I understood. The third one. Understood. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that, The Great mm -hmm. Beauty. And then number one, probably my top favorite scene of all time. I'm not saying, I'm not going to say best because that's sort <laughs> yeah, of, everyone yeah, yeah. can have their own interpretation. That's superfluous, yeah. But favorite uh, is uh, Children of Men. Okay. Have yeah. you seen that? Yeah. Oh yeah, okay, you see, good, good. You see. Well, I've seen two of the three. I haven't okay. seen two of the yeah. So, so Children of Men. There's a scene where I don't know if you remember. There's a ceasefire scene where the the baby is in the building, okay, and is emerges, and then um, they they're sort of walking down the stairs, and then they see the soldiers, and the soldiers they're all having this big battle. But when they see the baby, which is the first baby that's yeah. been born, in 18, yeah, 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 yeah. then they just the stop time. fighting. Like everyone just stops fighting for like, well, probably less than one minute. But there's like this ceasefire. Yeah, and then. I can't even describe why it's a beautiful scene, but it just, yeah. oh, that, it's, it's literally really, the best scene I've ever seen in a movie, I think. I will rewatch it. I think it's it's on one of the streaming services that I have access to. I will rewatch it because I remember distinctly the scene in which the mother is presented to, you know, the people who are searching for her, but don't know that she's pregnant. And like the baby bump is revealed. Yeah. So this before she gives birth and they're already in awe. Yeah, uh, and I think it was like in some warehouse or something, and she sort of emerges from the shadows and yeah. like that, which was already poignant. I don't remember the ceasefire scene, but I will rewatch it now. Um, I like the movie. Yeah, 
It also has an incredible scene when they're just a like technically incredible scene um, when they're driving in a car. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's it's as if it's shot all in a car. It would rather it was shot all in a car, but like the way they actually constructed the car so that a yeah yeah it's crazy. Yeah. It's, that's an amazing scene. That's yeah. an amazing scene. The whole yeah, the whole movie. I mean, the cinematography is, yeah. is is brilliant, and the acting was really yeah. good, and the music again. Yeah. I think John Tavener was also the uh, same guy who wrote The Lamb, which is mm-hmm. in The Great Beauty, but also did this. One. But I will follow up on the Malik movie. I know that in the last few years, a Lithuanian um, director has been doing his. Uh, hasn't been helping Malik with his movies. I don't know in what position specifically, whether as like the key editor or a DP, but um, a young and a quite a brilliant Lithuanian director has been a, in a partnership with Malik. So there's know. even some, you know, personal wow. connection. I, I met that guy. Uh, it was interesting. You met him? Oh. I met him quite accidentally, uh, just in a bar. Because Lithuania is not that big of a country. <laughs> no. Uh, well, let's connect everything as if we were a knowledge... Um, what was no, it? Knowledge graph. Knowledge graph. Um, the apartment to which I moved, to, to which I had moved at the time when I started playing Geogasser, was on this street called Iceland Street. Iceland recognized Lithuanian independence before anybody else in 1990. And um, because of that, it, I think it, you know, just as a celebration, as a commemoration, it, it got a... The street, very, very central, uh, downtown Vilnius, is called uh, Iceland Street. And it's together with another street that's called Vilnius Street, appropriately, they form what is called the Bermuda Triangle. It's where most of the bars of the city are located. And it's a really, like, sort of popping place. And uh, and we just, like, randomly, because not many people want to live there, we got a good and fairly affordable apartment. A really affordable apartment, let me scratch it. Really affordable apartment on Iceland Street in front of one of the key bars of like a sort of more like art, not even artistic crowd, but like a more, like a, the, the, the community around Venice University, let's say. And uh, yeah, just one day I'm very randomly uh, going there to meet a different friend. Met this guy um, who uh, worked for Malik and uh, met another guy who was a sculptor, um, sculptor, is a sculptor. Lithuania at the time won a big competition and sort of represented what I thought was, uh, I don't want to name names, I like him, but um, I liked him much more before I uh, met him. Uh, <laughs> because he, he seemed like an incredible guy who like had a great right ideas for what like, you know, a modern, maybe postmodern monument would look like. Uh, but during our conversation, he told me three stories of public urination. And it wasn't like in an artistic sense. It was just something that uh, somehow, strangely, the guy... Had a propensity for publicly urinating. Yeah, and sort of like, a, he, he endowed it with coolness, which to me seems strange. Um, and the other guy was, the, the director, who was a very like sort of diplomat, subtle, uh, diplomatic, subtle kind of person, I ultimately didn't end up speaking too much with, uh, which is maybe a shame, uh, but... Uh, but yeah, I guess, I don't know. There's no moral to the story, Never Meet Your Heroes, maybe, but that's not really it. Never was a hero. Um, but I am very interested in the more recent Malik movies, in part because he's great, and in part because of this super contingent and a little bit silly of a connection yeah. with it. 
but well, that's it. Life is contingent. So why life not? Is that's as good of a reason. That's connected. Yeah, everything's connected. That's as good of a reason as anything to watch that's a Terrence Malick movie. I think his latest is called A Hidden Life, which is Hidden about Life, yeah, yeah. I don't understand it, but it's about a Nazi, a guy who yeah. refuses to join the Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I don't even know what I'm going to call this episode because I feel like we talked about lots of different things. Maybe just like everything is connected. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I, I like it best when actually there's no particular theme and when you sort of like yeah. go with the fun. So, um, yeah, I, it's, I've taken a lot of your time, but thanks so much. Um, it's been great. And yeah, yeah it's been a joy. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.